let's pray and then we're gonna look at biblical masculinity. Father, thank you for the church. Thank you for loving your bride. Thank you for raising up men to care for it, Lord, from the nation of Israel all the way now to the church age. You have always provided men to care for her. We thank you for that, Lord. Thank you for the men, the elder pastors, overseers that I serve with. Thank you for those men. They, I need them, Lord. I can't do what I do without them, Lord, sharpening me and caring for me. And Lord, so I thank you. I pray that you would bless this church as we strive to honor you in every aspect, Lord. Lord, show us our weaknesses. Give us, give us ability to learn where we're weak and that we can become strong in those areas. And then, Lord, use our strengths to bring you much glory as well. Lord, we thank you for fathers today. We thank you for biblical masculinity. It is a dying subject in the world. Masculinity has gone the way of so many things. And so, Lord, as we turn our attention to God's word, may you strengthen our men in this building. May you strengthen wives and mothers and grandparents and children to understand that God designed masculinity. And it is something he uses to bring great glory to himself. So, Lord, teach us great things about you. Teach us great things about ourselves, Lord, where we can be more like you. Chisel away. Sharpen us up a little bit today, Lord. And I pray that the men in this room will go away encouraged, loving their God, and understanding their divine role God has given them in a better way. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Father's Day, happy Father's Day to you. Um, I was telling somebody, uh, I know Grandparents' Day is in September. I'm going to be highlighting that more this year. Um, we are going to work on that, yeah. Uh, I, I failed in that area, but now I'm part of the group. So we're going to highlight that. But happy Father's Day. What a, what a joy. I have four boys. All of them are checking in already today, and uh, they're scattered across the United States. But uh, we're so grateful for that. Father's Day is a great blessing, isn't it? It teaches us that God had a plan for humanity. God had a plan for humanity. He just didn't throw you out there and figure out how to do it. He had a plan. He had male and female create it, and, and he, he was going to use them to bring children into the world. And as I look across the room, there's so many dads in here. Um, some of you are granddads now, and some of you are dads, or some of you are dads-to-be. Hayward, he raised his hand that he was a father, and he is, because that child is alive from conception, right? Um, and so he'll be a father this year as well. And, and then there's going to quite a few babies born here just lately, so what a joy. Um, but the culture, the current culture of, uh, and its view of men is very poor, isn't it? <laughs> It doesn't take you long to peruse the channels and the scriptures, and men are either very weaklings and beat down and have a very, very minimal role in the family, or they're homosexual or whatever. You just, men, the view of men on the TV has gone terribly a wrong way. Society continues to, to, to portray men as weak. But that's not what God's word teaches at all. Someone once said, when you study the crumbling of every nation and you look deep enough, you have to ask the question, where were the men? Hmm. Something to think about today as well. Well, in recent years, there have been just tons of articles and, and books and interviews written on biblical masculinity. And though they 
all have their particular views, the one thing in common that comes out of them and they agree is there's a major problem with biblical masculinity and masculinity in general. There seems to be this cohesive agreement as you read these theses and books and articles and listen to interviews that male leadership is causing a great problem. The lack of male leadership is causing a great problem in three areas. One, society. We see that in many ways. Two, in our families. You take a dad out of the home or a dad who's absentee, even though he is there, you're gonna have great difficulties. And then certainly in the church. God has designed the church, and we'll look at that with men in mind in many ways. And so we see even that encroaching, encroaching into the church. Our doctrinal position here is that God created men and women equal, yet with different roles. You can read that in our doctrinal statement. We do not hide that. It's very much right on our front page of our doctrinal statement. We believe that God created men and women equal, yet gave them different roles to bring him glory. That's the way God designed it. Man doesn't always like that, so they're always fiddling with those things. But God also created men and women physically different, didn't he? Praise the Lord for that. <laughs> and yet that itself is under attack in so many ways. And it isn't hard, and speak with a doctor, and anybody who's studied medically, they will tell you the bodies of a man and a woman are so uniquely different, down to the cellular aspect of them. And it invades every aspect of their life. Even non-Christians write books that men are from something and women are from something else. I can't remember the title of it. Um, because they are so different. But what is the nature of true masculinity? See, the world has no answer for that question. In fact, given an answer, you might get yourself in trouble. I remember it wasn't too long ago, it was, our last church was in the greater San Francisco Bay Area. I opened the door for a woman who I didn't quite realize was a bit of a flaming feminist, and she pursued it to chew me out for opening the door for her. <laughs> and after I listened for a while, I said, ma'am, I just want it to be polite. I just wanted to open the door for you. And she murmured something and walked off. <laughs> and I thought, oh goodness. Uh, this is constantly under attack. And when we think about men in leadership roles, that becomes even more of a problem in today's society. But the Bible's not shy when it comes to the description of masculinity at all and why God established it. And my goal here today is to glorify God, encourage the men of our church. I want to encourage you. God made you who you are. And yes, we could all go, yeah, well, I, wish I, I wish I honored the Lord better. And I, I, I couldn't, you know, we can always grow and excel still more in things. But I want to encourage you. God made men. He made you. And he made you in his image. And that's the goal today. The biblical role of manhood is, is difficult enough because we've got to fight our flesh, don't we, men? Right? We wake up thinking about ourselves, don't we? Hmm, what do I got to do today? I'm busy and all the things that flood our mind. But you add the world's view, this evolving view of men and changing view, things can get blurry. But remember, we believe the Bible teaches that God created us to be men. To be men. And that means fathers and grandfathers and uncles and, and uh, men who come along who, who fill fatherly roles in people's life. God has given us a great 
role. Now, you might be saying, wow, you're going to get in trouble if this message gets out there because uh, you're really honoring men over women. But, well, you can go on our website and watch uh, many, many sermons that I have preached on biblical womanhood. <laughs> uh, last Mother's Day, I preached a, a message, and you can go there because we, we believe God tells us to have a very high view of biblical women. But today's Father's Day, okay? So we're going to focus on that. So um, if you're not happy with that, send your emails to Brian Giaquinto. <laughs> but again, this message is intended to encourage, encourage the men, encourage the women and children to support biblical masculinity in the church and in their home. Listen, if the church doesn't teach on this, if the church doesn't promote this, who's going to right now? Uh, we, we stand alone in a correct view, and, and, and we'll see. This is a correct view. This isn't man just telling, you know, I'm going to get home, put my feet up, and start yelling orders. That's not what the Bible talks about, biblical masculinity. We're servants to our families as we lead them. But if the church doesn't teach on this, who will? Let me give you some thoughts this morning. We'll have to move quickly. Um, but uh, number one, God declared the order of creation. God declares the order of creation. Well, the Apostle Paul wrote to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 2 that there was an order to creation. It's not hard to read that text and begin to realize that the church was struggling with this already. This is first century church. This is almost 2,000 years ago and they're struggling with similar aspects. Women are getting their roles confused. Men are getting their roles confused. And the church is now going sideways. So Paul writes a letter to Timothy and many topics that he covers within that. But a bulk of 1 Timothy has to do with the gospel and leadership. What to do with leadership and how to care for those and who cares for them and who handles that stuff. And so he writes to Timothy in first, chapter 2 verse 13 in his first letter he says for for it was Adam who was created first then Eve he's he's dealing with an argument of leadership within the church and teaching roles in that but he he goes back to the chronological order God declared the order of creation and he quotes just comes out brings that right out of Genesis chapter 1 for for it was Adam who was created first and then Eve and indeed, that's the, the record of creation. Take your Bibles and turn to chapter 1 of Genesis, chapter 1 and 2. We're going to peruse this just briefly, real quickly, because we need to know what God did. The fall of man and the rescue of the saints down through uh, the ages through Jesus Christ's coming has not changed what God set in order. Now, sin has confused things and made difficult Things And there's been plenty of abuse, please, I would imagine many of you can say, um, boy, I wish you understood the kind of father I had, and, and I'm sorry for those, and I wish I could change that. But yet God's word doesn't change even when men fail. So we turn to God's word to understand it. Look at verse 26 of chapter 1, then God said, let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. And then let him rule over the fish of the seas and over the birds of the skies and over the cattle and over the earth and over all the creeping things that creep on the earth. God created man in his image. Now that's mankind there, that word. And he, and in the image God created him, oh wait, male and female. <laughs> that's a very important verse, isn't it? In today's society. God made a distinction between man and woman. And heaven forbid I, I, I shudder to think of the judgment that comes when somebody attacks what God has set in order. And that's from gender to marriage to all kinds of things. 
And so we lovingly, kindly, but very directly teach what God says about marriage and gender. And here it's clear, God has set an order here, right? And if you turn over to chapter 2, which is more of a context of what happens um, in in uh, day 6 of creation. Day 6, God creates all the animals and so forth. And then at the end of day 6, he creates man. And what he was basically doing, you know your Bible here, he was showing his, his greatest piece, his greatest work, his highest of all creations. He waited till the end, and he created mankind. And so as we look at this, chapter 2 starts to unfold. It's really a commentary of what happens in day 6. But drop down to verse 7 with me, and we'll pick up some thoughts here. Then the Lord formed man of the dust of the ground. And he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. Now this narrative is moving along fairly quickly, but here God is forms and takes dirt, and he's God. He can, you can say, well, that's pretty impossible. Oh, well, yeah, there's probably a lot in this chapter you're going to have a hard time with if you're worrying about impossibilities. <laughs> he spoke everything into existence, so this isn't hard for God. He takes dirt, forms man. I don't know if he looked like a dirt man or what he looked like, because the Bible doesn't say, but whatever he looked like, he breathes life into him because God's a giver of life. God's giver of life. And this man, he comes alive. Look at that verse 7. The man became a living being. And so God places him in the Garden of Eden here in verse 8. And there he put the man that he formed. And out of the ground the Lord caused, in verse 9, every tree to grow that was pleasing to the sight and good for food. And the tree of life was also in the midst of the garden and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. 10 through 14 give us some areas that probably most of them no longer exist in the area where they were created for this garden. But verse 15, we begin to pick up the narrative again. Then the Lord took the man and he put him in the Garden of Eden and cultivated and keep it. He gave him work. He gave man the duty of work before the fall. Such an important truth. Look, guys, work's waiting for you tomorrow, isn't it? And all the problems that come with work, right? <laughs> God gave to man work. That's what we do. We work. Until God says it's time to retire and let the young guys do it for a little while. But we work. And so we even see work before the fall. God said go into the garden. Now, what an ideal job it was to have, right? No thorns or thistles. I think they were just gathering all the time. They're just gathering. And, and yet, here he is in the garden that God has given him. So, so we see right away, God wants man to work. He wants man to provide, right? And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, From every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but from the tree of knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day you eat of it you shall surely die. There's a death nail on that. You have everything under the sun, everything I've created, probably things that no longer exist on this world, maybe even, that have died out in some way. He has access to everything except one plant, one tree. And then the Lord said to him, it's not good for you to be alone. Not good for man to be alone. And I will make him a helper suitable. So what does he do? Verse um, 19, out of the ground, the Lord caused every beast of the field and every bird of the sky be brought to man. Isn't that interesting? He says, it's not good for man to be alone. He needs something. He needs a helper. He needs something suitable for him. But first, I want him to show him. I want him to see everything I have done, and I want him to understand how unique he is. And so God brings these animals. 
And I don't know what language they were speaking, but somehow Adam came up with hippopotamus and, you know, Tyrannosaurus X or whatever, all the dinosaurs, or, you know, the dog came and sat by him. The monkey was a little more nimble. Um, whatever he did. But at the end, notice, Adam, verse 20, there was no, not found a helper suitable for him. Now, certainly, if God can create things out of spoken word, he didn't have a problem naming things, so what was he doing there? He wants Adam to know there's nothing like him under creation. He was created in the image of God, and though the animals were wonderful and they have unique characteristics, they're not like him. And so God causes a deep sleep to fall on him. Verse 21 he took a rib from the side of it and closed up his flesh in verse 21 and he fashioned from that rib, rib woman. And notice the end of verse 22 and brought her to man. Woman becomes this gift to man. It is God's gift. Oh, often as I'm getting ready to do weddings or, um, or behind the scenes in the wedding days there, and we've already talked about this in great length in, in premarital counseling, but you, know, you grab that young groom and you say, are you ready for God's gift? She's out there. She's gonna be walking down the aisle. She is a gift from God. But in that relationship, you see that God gave the woman to man. God gave that, man, that woman uh, to man. There's a relationship. There's a headship already building there. This headship, as we're gonna see in a few moments, uh, uh, in a way reflects the headship within the Trinity. We'll see that in a moment. This is a beautiful thing. It's not something being fought. It is God's order. God put it, the way, put it this way, not man. And so we submit to the things that God is doing. Such precious words come out of Adam as he sees this. Can you can imagine a scene. He's coming out of anesthesia. Probably has his hand over his side. I don't know. This is me thinking. And he goes, whoa, man. <laughs> that's pretty cool the dog was great but <laughs> he didn't hold the candle to that thing <laughs> and that's what he says right he says this is now bone of my bones this is flesh of my flesh that's me there's someone finally like me and she was called woman because she was taken out of man and so man those guys leave their families right this is verse 24 dad I gotta go I got a bride right right Charles <laughs> God getting married here soon. Um, I mean, you're ready to leave it all because of her, because God gave you a gift, but you can see already she was given to him. And he is told to lead her and care for her and instruct her. Never do we see the instruction about the tree in the garden given to Eve. It was given to Adam because he was to lead her. Well, some may say, well, all that's good, but that's pre-fall, and those masculine traits were destroyed with the fall. And even in Christ, everybody's equal, so this doesn't mean anything. Hmm. Chapter 3 shows us a little different. Look at verse 6. Chapter 3 is a hard chapter, isn't it? Not hard to understand, it's just discouraging, isn't it? We get two chapters without sin in the Bible. I tell people, they always come and say, man, the Bible's just full of all kinds of things. I go, yeah, because it's a correct reflection of mankind. We kill each other, we rape each other, we murder each other, we're, we steal, we do all that. That's all through the Bible. It shows what kind of man is and the only hope for us is a savior. So we have two chapters without sin. <laughs> but it's all about Jesus' coming, right? Jesus coming to solve that problem. So the woman is in the garden. The serpent knows that she was created a little different than man. 
He obviously takes advantage of that. He goes and attacks her, right? He goes after her. But what's interesting, if you go down to verse six, when the woman saw that this tree was good for food, that it was delight to the eyes, that it was the tree was desirable to make one wise, that's 1 John chapter two, right? Verse 15 and 16, exactly that lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, so forth. She took its fruit and ate, and she gave also to her husband, and then this little phrase is in the Hebrew as well, very sharp, who was with her. Now why would God put that in the text if God did not see a responsibility for that man to protect his wife? He's showing that he failed. Now, Eve certainly was deceived. The New Testament highlights that. But he failed to protect her. He failed to protect her. And so you see this masculine role that God has given to protect this woman, to keep her from false teaching, things that would rob God of his glory, rob her of what God intended. His goal was to protect her, and he failed to do that. We say, well, how do you know that for sure? We'll look down at verse 8. They've split and ran off because they realized when sin opened their eyes that, wow, their condition is worse than they thought. And they ran off, and verse 8, they hear the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. That was, seemed to be the custom that the Lord did with him. And the, wife, the man and the wife hid themselves from the Lord. But verse 9, the Bible does not say he called out to the woman. What does it say? He called out to the man. In essence, he said, what have you done? Why did you not protect the woman I have given you? Of course, the classic start of a long, a long history of blame shifting <laughs> starts in this passage. The woman you gave me. So not only does he not protect her, he does not own up to per being the leader and the protector of her. He blame shifts it away to her. Of course, the woman says the serpent, and of course, he's gone. And there they are, naked before God with a very poor human covering that won't last. And the Lord makes dressing fit for them. But one more thought here before I leave this and rapidly move to my next points. When we begin to see the results or what we would call the consequences of the fallout of sin, first and foremost is that the Lord, the, the Lord God, Yahweh, is going to send one from the seed of them who will crush the head of the serpent. That's the gospel. Uh, Genesis 3.15 is a verse that, that we see the ramifications of that all the way through scriptures, all the way to the line of the Lord Jesus Christ as he comes and puts his feet on this earth and dies for us. But then he begins to hand out consequences. Look at verse 17. Then to Adam he said, that's God speaking directly to Adam, because you have listened to the voice of your wife, the word listening in the Hebrew here is a, a word that has listening with obedience. You obeyed her rather than me. You failed her. That's the idea of the word. And have eaten of the tree which I commanded you, saying you shall not eat from it. Curses the ground because of it, and toil you will eat of it in all your days. Both thorns and thistles shall grow for you, and you will eat of the plants of the field. But by the sweat of your face you will eat bread till you return to the ground, because from it you were taken you, um, to dust. You return is the idea here. So what God is doing, and what's very interesting, is he says, look, you're the leader. You, you did not listen to me I had given you direct instructions. Your wife was not yet created. I gave you direct instructions and you rejected me. So he is putting the authority on the husband. He's putting the authority, the spiritual oversight of her to him. 
And he says, look, you're going to be providing for her. But it's not coming easy. There's thorns and thistles going to grow. And by the sweat of your brow, and men, do we understand that or not? How hard it is to make a dollar today, isn't it? It's difficult. And everything seems to be against us. You small business owners, we pray for you. This, this virus has devastated some of your businesses and, and some of the things that have gone on in your life. It's disrupted your financial flow. We know how difficult it is. But God tells this man, you are the provider, you are the protector. Now, if you go back just in the sake of time, just let me tell you, he never tells that to Eve. Now, she's got her own consequences, right? Which none of us men really want either. <laughs> You're gonna birth children and it's gonna hurt. Amen, sisters? I mean, that, can't, that happens. That's a whole different world, right? Men are like, okay, yeah, equal but different, thank the Lord. <laughs> I mean, that's, and then, he, and then he says, not, not only is childbirth gonna be difficult for you, but you're gonna wrestle with your desire to lead your husband and not follow him, just like you did in the garden. And you see these roles that God has developed. He's saying this, not man. This, man doesn't come up with this stuff. God sets this. And so even from the beginning, God has given masculinity, leadership, protection, providing. We see that in this text. And so, uh, ladies, encourage your husband. Encourage the men in your life. Thank them regularly for the hard work that they do. Yeah, they're doubtlessly not perfect. And I promise you, we men will fail you women. But thank them. They go to work in a difficult society today. Satan's against them. The world's against them. The thorns and thistles of society are against them. And they provide. And they provide. And men, I want to encourage you. Your job is given to you by God. Years ago, before I stepped into ministry, I was a grumbler about my job. And then I began to read and study the Bible, and I began to realize God appointed me to that job. That was my mission point. I began to say, I will drive that truck during Bible school for your glory. And I will not complain, God, because you have provided for me. And that job led to another job and eventually ministry and so forth. But those were given to me by God because God was preparing me to care for Gina and our four boys. Ladies, children in this room, put your arm around your husband, your father, your grandfather, some man in your life and thank them for their hard work. It's a thankless job at times. But God has set this in his order. Number two, and we're going to put the foot down, so stay with me. The Bible affirms the roles of masculinity. The Bible affirms the roles of masculinity. Well, the Bible supports the design of headship role um, from cover to cover. It's written all through the Bible. When you even just start with the main patriarchs that were, were the starting of, of a people of God, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, men. The Old Testament kings and priests were men, Saul, David, Solomon, Aaron, Eli, Samuel, all of them. All prophets with public ministries were male. Elijah, Elisha, major prophets, minor prophets. You can study them. The authors of the Bible are male. God has a place for this. And we can't look at it and, and, and have sinful thoughts about this. This is God's design. It isn't hard to look and see that God, Christ himself chose 12 disciples. One of them was a heretic. But he chose men to be with him and to lead. We presume that the 70 that he sent out were also males. Paul makes it abundantly clear that the elders of a church are to be male. 
They're all masculine pronouns. Um, the last church we're in didn't have biblical eldership uh, either, and so we were able to develop that. Um, and I remember preaching on it, and of course it was online as well. And one day I got a call from a local um, a woman who was a pastor of a church. I'm trying to say this carefully because I don't want to use names. And so she wanted to meet with me. And so she made a meeting with my secretary and came to my office. And so I sat down with her and, and tried my best to be kind and minister to her. And she finally, I said, well, what, what can I do for you? And she says, well, I'm pretty tired of what you're teaching on. <laughs> I, go, I go, well, have you been attending church? <laughs> I said, no, but I'm watching online. And everything you talk about, about pastors, elders, and overseers are always male. We don't get it. Why are you doing this? I said, would you mind just reading a verse, or some verses to me? Do you, do you know your Bible? Said, oh, of course I know about my pastor. Okay, good. I said, well, why don't you turn the Bible over to the first Timothy 3. Let's just start there. And let's start reading together. And so she began to read. And they're all masculine pronouns. And I said, how do you be a husband of one wife? And how do you be a man who leads his home? And she said this to me. She goes, I've never seen this before. And I go, ma'am, I appreciate that you love people and you want to care for them. But God has a role. God has a role for men and he has a role for women. We need to be careful of that. That's not my words. That's what he says. And, of course, there's always those guys that come along. I think, um, uh, oh, I shouldn't do this, but the name of the guy who bought the NIV, he, he got a hold of that for a few years. And he said, oh, this is the number one selling book around the world. So he created a version and he degenderized all the pronouns in the Bible. Now that's, that's messing with God's word. So look, some of this, and we think about this. Can you imagine me preaching this down at Daytona 1? <laughs> How this would go over? <laughs> the world doesn't like this teaching. But the world doesn't like God. And how he presents himself within this. God has a role for men. Now, he allows um, females to, to serve the Lord in many ways, and we talk about that in many of these other messages. But there's just so many things that stand out to you. In 1 Timothy chapter 5, Paul tells Timothy to make a list of those in need. They're called the widows who are indeed in need. And they're all female. Now, isn't that interesting? Why didn't he create a list that were for men? And you can study this, 1 Timothy chapter 5, the list is for women. It was, for, it was actually probably for the deacons of the church to have a list of those women, those widows who did not have a husband, who cared for the church. There's a list and qualifications of how they could be on that list, but it was made for women because men, God told men to go to work. We've actually done church discipline on men who would not work because the Bible tells us to. It tells us that slothfulness and laziness is ungodly. And so men are encouraged to work. Men are expected to work and earn a living. This is what role God has given them. He didn't ask them to birth children. He didn't give them the capability to nurse them either. He gave that to women. He gave them a unique role. And so in most cases, you study it, there's, there's always something that leads you back to the role that God has for men. David had his mighty men. That went with him. What a great passage to study. Furthermore, God is always referring, he's referred to himself in masculine pronouns. Now this is blasphemous when they change this in the Bible. Uh, and not, not the real Bible, but the Bible they made up. They took away God's masculine pronouns. Boy, if there's anything you ever want to stand in front of God that you wish you never did would be change his word. Oh my goodness. 
I shudder for those people who messed with his word. Because that's what God comes across. He wants us to understand that. God is always referred to in masculine pronouns rather than feminine. And when God becomes flesh, when Christ steps out of heaven and dresses himself in humanity, he's known as the son of God, the son of man. That's what he's called. He takes on that role. Piper says this, there are over a hundred pictures of God in the Bible displayed as male, such as king or warrior or husband. A hundred of them at least. So masculinity reflects and reveals the reality of God. God is masculine. He's designed that that way. And Josh alluded to this today. He is our father. I'm going to talk about this in the next point. And so there's a, ref- there's a reflection that us men have. In church, we fight for these things. And so men, church, can you see why this is worth fighting for? There's a clear attack on God's design, on the family, on society, what's good for society, and certainly on the church. Now, there's a few times where there's images in the Bible that have a feminine view to them. Paul says things like this, I cherished you and I nourished you. Uh, Very feminine terms. But yet he's teaching about shepherding. He's, he's, he's shepherding the flock, so he actually uses those terms. And what, I thought that's so precious. Wow, men, as we care for people, we, we do learn from the way a mom cares for them. Yeah, dad's come in a little different. You're okay, get up. <laughs> mom, you know, come up here, climb on the lap. Let's get a Band-Aid, you know. We're over there going, he's fine. But there is something to that, right? Um... Uh, I went through some very difficult surgeries in my past, broke my back, all kinds of things, cowboy and stuff. And the difference between male nurses and female nurses is, is obvious, at least to me, at least the ones I had. I have to be careful and get myself in trouble. I'm looking at a few nurses in here. Um, but there's a gentleness to them. They, they care for things a little different. And so Paul uses that analogy to elders, to how he cares for them. I nourished you and I cherished you. We see that used even in the scriptures. But yet... Over and over, Christ is always referred to the masculine because he's the groom of the bride, the church. All men point to God in a special way, different than women do. William Mauser in his book called Five Aspects of Men wrote this, if someone can read the Bible and seriously question God's masculinity, he has already resisted, ignored, discounted far more proof than an apologist could ever assemble. So if you're going to read the Bible and say, well, God's not male. Boy, you've already walked into some dark times. Now, the point is, is that men were created in the likeness of God in a unique way that differs from the role of women. And this should be celebrated. And this should be taken on. Just last thought on this point. I love at the end of the Bible, when God has brought all of his bride together. Jew and Gentile, he's put them together, and we hear terms like this, Revelation 19, 70 says, let us rejoice and be glad and give, give the glory to him, God, for the marriage, lamb, the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride, his bride, masculine, has made herself feminine ready. Isn't that interesting? The church is always referred to in a feminine or female tense in the Greek. Always, because she reflects, she reflects women. And that's what Ephesians 5 is. We'll see that in just a second. The women, they, they show us how the church should submit itself to Christ. Men, we reflect Christ and how we should lovingly, sacrificially lead the wives. What a beautiful story that is. Three, 
the loss of masculinity in the church is not new. Now, Apostle Paul was dealing with this. He wrote a, a verse in Galatians chapter 3, 28, as he was writing his first, this is Paul's first letter to anyone that is recorded and inspired in the scriptures. And he says in Galatians 3, 28, it says this, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now, in Paul's day, and certainly today, people love to abuse this verse. Now, is there seriously not Jew or Greek today? Well, I know there's Jew because we drive by their synagogue down here all the time. <laughs> and some of you are Jewish. We have Jewish people in this congregation. I'm Gentile. I'm porca cheese, porca keys, or whatever you want to call me. My grandma called us porca cheese. Um, uh, you know, I've I, I, I got a blend of me in there. Um, uh, so is that not existing? So is that what Paul's saying? Is there not, in this day, slave and free men? Well, certainly there was slaves and free men. The Bible writes all about the role of the master and the role of the slave. Was there not male and female in this role? Well, certainly there was. So the Bible's talking about our position in Christ. There, there's not a difference in Christ, right? There's an equality in our standing in Christ, but oh, people love to abuse this. And they love to have... Uh, love to cause division within the church. So Paul writes 1 Corinthians 11, and I can't go into this text, but just listen to some of the thoughts I put down about this. There Paul starts to describe the differences between men and women, leadership and submission, and the relationship between God and Christ. And Paul is addressing head coverings. You remember that passage, right? You read that passage, you go, I don't know what that means. (laughs) Yeah, a lot of us do. But if you study it in depth enough, you begin to realize there's some greater issue. And one of the issues is the way men and women dress to reflect how God designed them. And a lot of it has Old Testament terminology. God did not care for men dressing like women. In fact, if you find the Old Testament passage, there's usually under, that person's under a pile of rocks, if you understand what I mean. And so Paul is saying, look, God has designed men and women to reflect how they were created both in society, culture, and the church. However, the basis of Paul's teaching of the roles does not ultimately rest on culture, but on the Trinity. And he brings in the relationship between the Trinity into that argument. So Paul teaches that Christ is the head of man, and man is the head of the woman. And so there's this biblical responsibility that reflects the Godhead. Jesus Christ said, Father, I will step out of heaven. I will submit to you. I will go and I, will, and I will redeem this people that can't come to you any other way unless I go and I become that perfect sacrifice and the Lord Jesus submits. And there that picture is fulfilled in husbands. We reflect that servant-minded leader, Jesus Christ. And wives reflect that as they submit to their husbands like the church submits to the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul is helping them understand that role. Jesus, Gina and I often have fun discussions about our roles. And we, we laugh at, you know, and she'll say, oh, I don't want your role. You're supposed to be an example of Christ. And I go, oh, I don't want your role because you'd have to submit to me. <laughs> um, so we laugh about that, but what, what, it do, what we're doing is we're trying to sharpen each other that, hey, we have roles here to play, roles to live out because God's glory is exalted through the way we conduct each other. And there's great love for her. I honor her position. She's raised four of our children, homeschooled for 19 years. I mean, she, she's cooked a million meals. So when she wants to go out to eat, guess what we do? <laughs> now that we're empty nested. I mean, she has done so much to exalt God and to care for her husband. 
while teaching. She taught in public school. She's done all these different things in her life. She's so greatly gifted to allow me to do what I do. And that's that picture why men fill their role and women fill their role and God is glorified and the family has security. You show me a man who's not honoring God with his life and I'll show you children who are insecure. Show me a woman who bails on her God-given role. And that doesn't mean women can't go to work. They just have to keep their home as a priority and that's not easy, but they do that. You show me where that starts to fall apart. I will show you children who are insecure. God brings the security to our families through our God-given roles. It brings great glory. And God loves biblical masculinity. Be men. Be men, men. God loves that, and he designed it. Oh, there was such a problem in Corinth. Um, boy, there's so much to talk. This is, this is a study that you can just speak on for so long because of the, the years and years of problems with it. But there was a group called the Articles of Delphi. They were in Corinth. This was a group, this was a very godless, pagan, Satan-run uh, uh, religion, and mostly run by prostitute women and uh, very strong, strong women. And uh, these women would be often seen down in Gehenna, which was the dump off the hills where all the sewage and garbage would flow down there and pigs would be eating dead bodies and all that. They would be found down there, you know, bare-chested with spears killing pigs with their legs on them. You know, it was a big, strong movement of women in that time, and plus they ran the temple, the Delphi Temple as well. Well, in Corinth, some of those gals actually got saved. Praise the Lord. They had Pastor Bobby's trying to evangelize them, bringing them into the church, and it was happening. Right? I'm smiling back there. Um, and, and these gals, these people that were way outside of the faith, it seems like were getting saved. And they were coming into the church. But they needed to be disciples because guess what was happening? They were leaders. And they didn't quite understand how to fit within there. And there was problems going on. And guess what happens when strong women often arise? What do men do? Go right ahead. They advocate their position. And all kinds of problems begin to happen. So Paul's writing in 1 Corinthians over and over, trying to deal with the fail of leadership, the fail of men, the roles in there, the incredibly mystic things that made its way into church that he had to deal with. And at the end of the text, he says this, listen to this passage, be on alert, stand firm in the faith, that's our doctrine and all that we believe that Christ has accomplished. And then he says like this, act like men. What a statement. 1 Corinthians 16, verse 13. Act like men. Why does he say that? Because men had advocated that role. And the church was falling apart. And that happens every time. Men back away, and the church begins to have problems because God wants men to be leaders. And you say, well, how do you act like men? Well, the verse, next verse tells you how. It says, let all that you do be done in love. So this isn't, this isn't a message of, men, let's go out and, you know, chest bump and high five and eat bacon and donuts all day long, which I do enjoy. Um, it, is a, it is a message that God made you a man. Act like a man, a biblical man. Now, you young ladies in here, do not settle for a guy who's not a man. If you know what I mean. If he's not going to provide for you and lead you and protect you, understand the Bible and lead you to church and put you under the teaching of God's word, run fast from that guy. He will not take you to Christ. He will take you somewhere else. And some of you ladies know this. 
you didn't trust in God and you ended up in a difficult situation. So look, it's another reason why the church has to teach on this stuff. Our next generation of young men and women are coming. There's tons of them in here. And, and you are the next generation that the, the church crumbles over underneath. Your guys' leader or leadership or fail or we keep moving forward. Church needs men. Act like men. Value what God has done. Now, certainly the father has every right. Um, oops, I passed up a passage. Four. Boy, am I only on four? I'm in trouble here. Fast. God, um, God in his masculine fatherly position. I, I tell you, I could preach on this for a long time because we see what it's done to the church. Scripture is very clear that as Josh talked about, um, earthly fathers find their origin in a heavenly father, right? And, and what a sweet term. When you think about God, I, often I'll have people do this, write down one word that when you think of God. And a lot of people write down some beautiful things, you know, powerful, strength, savior. I mean, they write down all that stuff. But every once in a while, someone will say father. Ooh. Now, you may not have a great father, but if you study the Bible, the word father when attached to God is a beautiful thing because he's perfect. He loves, he, he gives, I mean, he, he disciplines. Everything he does is perfect. And so when we think, that's why we attach the term heavenly father to it. What a sweet term in Christ. We're gonna see this coming up in Mark as, as Christ is in his high priestly prayer just before his arrest. He, in John chapter 17, gives us to the Father in a sense. He's, he's been, we've been given to him, he's kept us, but then he hands us off to the Father and he, he, everything the Father has done for him, he asks the Father to do for us. Beautiful text. And then this term Father captures this aspect of him. He provides, he protects, he's the leader of the church family. And so this term is just absolutely beautiful given. Uh, Ephesians chapter three says that we pray to the Father. Paul says, I pray to the Father that our eyes will be open, how you supply our needs. Again, we, men, we look to the Father, how he supplies for us, and then we mimic him by God's grace. We take the riches that he has given us and we care for our family. We pay our bills. We, we meet needs the best we can. And that's what the father does for us. Oh, I'm moving quickly and so much more to be said, but we have to think about the prodigal son, don't we? Luke chapter 15. That, I think that's mis, mislabeled. Here's how I label it in my Bible. I scratch off that headline because you can because the headlines are not inspired. We put those in there to find your way around. So I write the loving father and the prodigal son. I think that's a better description of the parable, don't you? Because you, you know the scene, right? Son goes, look, uh, dad, I love money more than you. He doesn't say that. Give me my bucks, I'm leaving. Off he goes, lives this carnal life, finds himself in a pig trough, destitute, has nothing. All the while, the father is standing out there looking for the return of his son. Doubtlessly praying and waiting and before the son can even make up his mind of what he's going to do, maybe I'll just go back and be a servant. Even the servants ate better than I did. The father sees him and runs to him. Runs to him. This, the son who's a derelict. The son who went back on his word. The son who disowned his father in so many ways. The father sees him and he runs to him. What a beautiful example. Men, many of us have a child or two that maybe struggles. Are you ready to run to them? As God is returning them, are you ready to run to them? And there we see the Lord do incredible things. There he gives unmitigated 
uh, forgiveness, unmitigated love. He, he doesn't ask for anything returned. He establishes him to his rightful position because that's the way fathers love. And see, this makes Ephesians 6, 4 such a beautiful verse. Fathers, do not provoke or exasperate your children to anger, but bring them up in the dis- uh, discipline, the admonition of the Lord. Instead of you running out and saying, well, you, boy, this is what you get. I ought to leave, just leave you in that pig trough. <laughs> Dads, sometimes that's our hearts, huh? But instead, he runs out and he says, listen, I love you. I'm going to restore you. I've been waiting for you. This is the Father. I love 1 John 3, 1. I love to stop in the first phrase. It says, see how great a love the Father has. I love to stop the verse right there before I read the rest of that. See how great the Father, the love the Father has. Oh God, I do not love like you do. Please help me. He goes on to say that he's bestowed upon us so that we would be called children of God. Five, Christ displays a his masculinity as an example for husbands. Again, a passage that you know well if you've been around this church or you've studied your Bible at all. Ephesians chapter five begins to illustrate in verse 25 the role of this husband. He is to love his wife as Christ loves the church. What a tall order that is. And then he begins to show that this this Christ-like figure is to lay his life down just as Christ laid his life down for her. This is biblical masculinity. See, I don't want you to think when you hear the masculinity, you think of muscle sweat and, you know, whatever else may come to your mind. I don't know what comes to mind anymore. This is biblical masculinity. This is the man who says, God gave me this bride. I will lay my life down for her. You want to get to my wife? You're going to go through me. That man who protects her and cares for her and leads her, but does it in a loving way where she knows she's cared for, where he's an example to the children. And the passage is so beautiful. Gave herself for him so that he might sanctify her, set her apart. She's unique. There's nothing like her. I keep telling the church all this time. You hear this all the time. There's nothing like the church on the earth. Every organization you can go look all fails. The church is unique, and so that is true because we are the bride of Christ, and he set us apart from the world. And so husbands, biblical masculinity is you set your wife, you set those women in your life aside, and you sanctify them, and you care for them, and you bring them to the word. Notice the text goes on, that they cleanse her by the washing of the word. You, you make sure that she's under the teaching of the truth of God's word. You, you bring her to church, but not only that, you care for her biblically at home. You lead her into the word of God. And the, and the text just goes on, eventually gets down to that nourishing and cherishing aspect that we have. What a beautiful text. And then, six, the church's design for biblical masculinity. Oh, so many passages. Titus chapter two, verse two says, you older women, I mean, excuse me, you older men. It goes on to talk about older women. And he gives this list of things that older men should have. And they're very masculine. You should be temperate. That means you got self-control. You, you don't lose it. You're, you're, you, you have your, because God is in you, because Christ is living with you, you have control. You're dignified. Now, it isn't like, you know, top hat and coat and like, you know, cane. <laughs> it means you're dignified. When something difficult comes up, you trust God, you, you bathe it in prayer, and you speak with dignity. I mean, these are masculine terms. Um, uh, you're sensible. I mean, you're not controlled by your desires. Well, I want this, so I'm going to have it. Boom. Family suffers. No, you're sensible. These are, these are masculine. They're sound in faith. 
in love and perseverance. These are masculine. John writes to, to men. He says in 1 John chapter 2, verse 13, I'm writing to you fathers because you know him who was from the beginning. I'm writing to you young men because you have overcome the evil one. I'm writing to you children because you know the father. I have written to you fathers because you know him who sent me from the beginning. He goes on and on, men, young men, back and forth to teach us that he loves this relationship. And again, you could look at 1 Timothy chapter three and, and, and again, those are qualifications for elder. But let me say this, men. You want real masculinity? Go live according to that standard. We talk about this all the time. One of our goals as elders is to help men strive for Christ in such a way that they live lives that are qualified. I think there's many men in this church that are qualified according to the qualifications to be an elder. God just hasn't called them. And that's masculine. You're a one-woman man. I am not flirtatious with other women. I'm a one-woman man. I'm dedicated to her. I'm I'm self-controlled. I don't fly off the handle. I know the word of God. These are masculine, beautiful uh, pictures of men. And guys, this is what God's calling us to be. Seven, masculinity, biblical masculinity, and the precious commodity of wisdom. I'm out of time, but boy, I I had Aaron read that passage because I love that passage. My son, my son. Over and over, and probably um, there's two thoughts of uh, thinking on this, but Solomon wrote that before, before he fell into sin with the, all the wives that he had and so forth, or he wrote it afterwards. I believe he wrote Ecclesiastes afterwards, Proverbs I think he wrote beforehand, but you can, you can go down to Proverbs, and men, I would encourage you, men who have children, especially young boys, or you have young men in your life, read those. Young men, you should read Proverbs. It's a dad talking to his sons. My son, pursue wisdom like you would pursue silver. It'll it'll lengthen your days. It'll give you strength. You'll learn not to lean on your own understanding because that's gonna be a problem, I promise. Right, men? Older men, you lean on your own understanding? Where does that get you? In trouble, doesn't it? You begin to lean on God for your wisdom and understanding. That's masculine. Guys, we get to to lean and be a picture of of God's wisdom. That's what God calls us to be. Oh, so much more could be said. We could tell men to outdo one another. Romans chapter 12, verse 10. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. We could lean on that for a while. Masculinity um, bears with one another and forgives one another. Colossians says men um, bear with one another and forgive each other. Even if they have a complaint against you, just as the Lord forgave you, so you should. And so masculinity is is men who forgive, like Christ has forgiven you. Masculinity is filtered through every word that we speak. And so Paul says in Ephesians 4.29, let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such the word is good for edification. Oh, that's masculinity, when men know what to say and say it well without without negativity or drawing some uh, wicked thought or wicked words out of their mouth. All right, let me close this. Men, act like men. Rediscover biblical masculinity. Oh, it's great. We can do that. God strengthens you. He strengthens you. He puts his spirit within you. Families, take time today. Put your arm around a man in your life, husband, father, brother, Someone and tell them you love them and tell them you appreciate that God made them the way they are and encourage them to be men. Oh, the church needs this. Society needs this. 
This world needs this. Men, let's be men. Amen. Father, thank you for our time in the word. This is uh, an exhausting subject. We could spend many, many times, many, many days in the pulpit here teaching on this. Lord, we shudder to think of the ramifications of what has happened to both society um, and families and now even the church in many cases around the world because men have advocated their, their leadership. So Lord, we pray that you would use Riverbend for your glory, not, not, not any way to bolster us, Lord, but for your glory, that you would raise men up. And Lord, maybe Father's Day 2020 was a day where someone, some man in this room said, God, I'm gonna pursue biblical mas- masculinity for your glory and for my good. And they dedicate themselves to a godly, loving man. And Lord, I pray that. Lord, help us in this room to honor those men in our lives. Maybe they weren't always our biological father, but maybe someone else who poured their lives into us, who showed us how to be a man, how to work, how to provide. And so I pray that today is a great day. Lord, may the men here be encouraged, Lord. And may the women and children and others around encourage these men. God made you the way you are. Let's live for him. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.